What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Grabs Podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what we do here. But in case you stumbled in or this is the first one you're hearing, our goal here is simple. It's to highlight our wins and learn as much as we can from actual fire ground rescues in the hopes of making us all a little bit smarter and a little bit more effective and efficient. Our guests today are Lieutenant Brian Gregory, Driver Hank Tiller, Clint, and Clint Carey uh, of a fire department in Northeast Georgia, kind of a metro Atlanta area. So welcome to the show, Brian, Hank, and Clint. Uh, stoked to get to jam with you guys today. How you doing? Doing great. Good. How are you? Good. I'm doing awesome. Um, so I guess we'll get into it. We've got a really interesting show today. I think everyone's going to appreciate uh, some of the intricacies and difficulties and, and some of the decisions that had to be made on this fire. Um, I, I think this is, is a unique fire, and so I'm glad that we get to share this story. So thank you guys for, for allowing us to, to pick your brains for a little bit. Yes, sir. Uh, can you guys, one of you guys, just tell us just a brief overview uh, of, of your area. How big is your area? About how many guys and girls are on your department? Um, and, and what kind of your staffing levels are in your, in your department? All right, so um, we're about, I had to look this stuff up, but about a 429 square mile county um, and 37 square miles of that is a lake um, that's in our area. It's about 205,000 people. Um, we cover that with, there's about 350 um, firefighters, operational personnel um, out of 16 stations. And most of those are um, an engine and an ambulance at the station. A couple of those are single engine houses and then some of them have specialty equipment like trucks and squads in them. Okay, and what's your staffing on your fire apparatus? So that um, we're getting to where we're trying to get three people on each engine. Um, we have that guaranteed on four of the engines currently um, and the rest of them could be two people, but that is our minimum is two on those. Um, and those four are in the busier fire districts um, and we'll staff those and it's based off, you know, previous numbers of fires in those area. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Yeah. Our trucks run with three and we have a squad. Um, it's a heavy rescue that has four on it. Okay. This one's maybe a little bit more nebulous. Um, but what's the search culture like within your department? Uh, kind of meaning who typically searches? Is it engine? Is it truck? Is it the second arriving or third arriving? Um, and how many crews are typically searching? So For a it, it depends. So, so it depends on um, what shift, battalion, officer, supervisor that's on the scene. Um, there's different mindsets and expectations um, between those, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I would say our culture is, since I've been here for 15 years, is mostly focused on extinguishment. Um, and that's kind of where it, where it stops. Um, now, there's a, a pretty good core group of us that are working on changing the culture and the mindset and the expectations when it comes to search. Um, and we recently did a multi-company drill where we're, we got, you know, to spread some of that message to everybody in the county that was on shift. So. We're, we're slowly starting to, to introduce these ideas and, and culture changes. Excellent, excellent. So just to piggyback off that last uh, question and answer. So as much as I'm interested in the product, um, I'm also interested if interested in the process. 
Um, so how often would you guys say that you guys either as a crew or as a department, I guess I'm more concerned with, uh, train on search? As a department, not that often historically. Um, and if it is, it's, it's basically just practicing what most of us were taught a long time ago and no real new um, techniques for the most part. Um, now that is happening at, at various parts of the county. Like I mentioned, that core group of people um, but it's, I would, ne I would not say it's been countywide um, up to this point that I can remember. Okay. Um, getting a little bit more specific, what does your first alarm consist of to a single family dwelling? How many units are you sending um, typically? First alarm. So we send, yeah, we send just a regular residential, um, would be three engines, a ladder truck, our squad or heavy rescue, two ambulances and a field supervisor. Okay, and those, the, the brothers and sisters on the ambulances, are they, are they able to go inside? Are they all firefighters as well? Yes, sir, everybody's a firefighter and everybody has a level of medical, medical training. Okay, well, perfect. Uh, can you guys tell us a little bit about the rescue that you guys made? So what was the date? What time of day was it at? What was it dispatched as? And then kind of give us a little bit of rundown of everything that happened kind of from dispatch until you guys got to the scene. So it was May 23rd, and I think the dispatch time was one around 1.42 in the afternoon. Uh, originally came out as assist law enforcement. It dispatched one ambulance to assist law enforcement with a domestic dispute. Uh, notes started coming in describing the situation. The guy had barricaded himself in the house, had a domestic with his, with his wife, trying to commit suicide by cop. Obviously it wasn't working. So he decided to set his house on fire. So then it upgraded to a residential. So from the time of dispatch of 142, I'm gonna look back at some notes real quick. 142 to 210. I think is when we arrived on scene. And what unit were you? Nope, never mind. So we arrived on scene at 142. Uh, we were met by law enforcement was in front of the house, multiple police cars. They kind of waved us in. I got out and talked to the first officer and he advised that we could do a walk around. So we did a walk around with SO. I went one way. My firefighter went the other way. So we kind of met in the back. Uh, there was an officer in the back and advised that he had already pulled lighter logs out of the house. He had set one in the basement that one of the officers had pulled out and extinguished. I think they had pulled one out of the foyer, if I can remember correctly. And then obviously there was still something burning in the house. So when we got there, there was a light haze of smoke coming from the, the eaves, a little from the roof line. But as you got around to the seaside of the structure, they had a sliding glass door that was open with, I would say, a moderate amount of smoke coming out. So with law enforcement not knowing what they wanted to do yet, uh, we went ahead and pulled our lines. We positioned a two and a half around the back and an inch and three quarter to the front door, but then staged in the front yard for, I guess it was about 30 minutes waiting on them to decide whether he was going to come out, they were going to go in, what the plan of attack was going to be. 
Uh, you got anything to add on that? Well, yeah, so Hank was um, definitely there first and for several minutes before we arrived on the ladder truck. But um, I spoke with uh, the law enforcement officers kind of while he's speaking with the family um, at the same time. And they kind of just confirmed that, you know, the, the split level house, they had, they had cleared the bottom floor. Nobody was definitely down there. And then kind of halfway up that landing, um, they had expressed to me that they had basically had a visual of him in the like alpha delta corner of the house. Um, and they felt pretty confident that that's where he was located, but they couldn't see him, you know, at the time that, that we had arrived. But I guess just there, you know, where they had, where they were located, they were pretty confident he was in that area of the home. <clears throat> okay. So Go ahead, from Mike. our, I guess our supervisor's standpoint, when he was there, um, as the battalion chief, just speaking with him, me and Hank both spoke with him um, at different times and together. His mindset was, you know, we have a number one, a fire. We have a threat to, we don't know who, um, because we don't know if the guy's armed or not. Um, and then we have, you know, possibly as this develops, a fire victim. So he's having to make a lot of decisions, um, you know, on all three of those things and, you know, consult with law enforcement, the family and us, um, you know, that was kind of early on. We all knew that that was, you know, the, the scenario we were up against. Yeah. I don't envy that battalion chief uh, mm -hmm. having to make those decisions and, and figure out, Hey, am I putting my guys and girls at risk? Does this guy have a weapon inside? Uh, what are conditions like inside? That's, that's a tough one. I don't, I don't envy him at all. No. So going back real quick, you, you described this as a, a split level house. Can you just describe what that means to you? Was there a garage there? What did it look like when you opened the front door? Meaning is it, you have kind of a, like, is it a tri-level or a bi-level house, I guess? So it's a bi-level. You have a two car garage kind of pulled down a driveway to a two car garage. You enter the, the main division of the house. So you enter into a foyer and there's steps that go down to a bedroom, possibly two bedrooms, two, bedrooms. two bedrooms, a bath, a laundry room, and access to the garage. And then you go upstairs and you go into a living room, a dining room, a kitchen on the left side of the house, a living room right in the center with a fireplace, and then to the right side of the house, two more bedrooms. Those bedrooms and are above the attached garage, correct? Correct. Okay. And you also mentioned there was something a little bit funky about the slider on the Charlie side. You said there was a deck, but you said there was no access to the deck, no, meaning no stairs. There's no stairs to the back porch. Uh, it just had a big sliding glass door coming out of the kitchen onto the back deck, but no stairs to access the deck. Okay. So we ended up, as everything started to progress, the uh, smoke conditions obviously got the time. And that's when our battalion chief had to make the decision. If he's inside, they haven't had any contact with him. He's either unconscious or dead. So that's when he made the decision to, and after speaking with the homeowner, they kind of told us where his bedroom was, where they thought he might be in the house. So our battalion chief made the decision to let us work off of the CD corner where they thought his bedroom would be. So we decided to, VES, the CD corner of his bedroom. That was our initial 
when operations started, we were going to start there. Okay. Which was adjacent to the, the back porch that had no steps on it. So we laddered the windows, took out the glass, and I'll let Brian kind of tell the story there. He was the first on, uh, first up the ladder. So I'll let him tell the, the BES side of it. And just, you know, back in, just as we're starting to do this, um, our battalion chief, you know, he expressed that the reason kind of just sticking to that corner was he felt like um, that was the highest probability of his location based on everything that Hank's already said. Um, and that, you know, if the guy's in that area, he's the least, he's not really a threat if he's in that area. And he wanted us to strictly stick to that area in his, in his initial plan of attack. So, you know, we're very short conversation. That's where we were going. And it just kind of happened, you know, on the spot. We deployed several of us to go to work and um, laddered the window. We think so. I think the window, looking back, had failed at the there was two windows on the Charlie Delta corner um, on the Charlie side. And the, the right window had failed at the top. So there was some, you know, moderately heavy dark smoke like a grayish black smoke already coming out of that window um, so i took the bottom part of the glass um, cleared it hit it with a tick quickly knowing that the room was um, very hot but not knowing you know if it's the room of origin um, i could see the door and it looked like you know that quick view that the door had um, possibly wasn't shut all the way or had failed at the top um, so you know knowing that it had to be really quick um, just there was a piece of furniture right in front of the window. I had to kind of push it out of the way and go over it and tried to make it to the door. Um, but the heat was so high and I was you know, pretty flat to the ground. Um, and the plan was for Hank to be right behind me. And so made it part of the way across the, the floor, touched the bed as I went by and didn't quite make it to the door and had to turn around and come back knowing that the heat was too high. And, um, we already had a line back there um, with people on it ready to flow. So I came back to the window, um, told them to flow water into the room, and I would make one last attempt to go, you know, all the way to the door. Um, and this is all happening as seconds, I would say. Um, they flowed water, and I tried to make it back across the room. Again, Hank tried to come in right behind me, made it part of the way into the room, and we both ended up coming back out um, knowing that that was not the room that we should be making entry into just on the conditions once we took the glass and laid eyes on it. So just to clarify, it sounds like there was no interior hose line. It was one hose line that was outside the window that you VES. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Oh. And that was all based on, you know, the, the safety part of it from our chiefs. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want any entry into the house knowing that somebody could be, you know, alive and moving those other parts of the house that didn't look as bad from the exterior as far as smoke and just the smoke conditions basically what he's basing off of um so that was yeah yeah all nobody that, in there except our corner yeah. all that makes complete sense i just want to make sure that i was tracking with what you guys were saying here you are okay so you you tried to be yes you came out they flowed some water you guys went back in did you say you pulled back out again that second time yes okay why don't you pick Until up we, from there? So after we came out there, we immediately moved our ladder to the back deck that had no steps. So we laddered the back deck. Uh, myself, Lieutenant Gregory, and Clint all made access and went through the, the sliding glass door that was open. So it had been left open. 
Easy access to it. Open. Sir? Unlocked or open? No, it was wide open. So okay. thank you. Nice smoke rolling out of that. I'd say the smoke level was probably banked down to about three foot off the off the ground at that point, off the floor system. So we make our way in, kind of split up in three different directions. Uh, Brian, Lieutenant Gregory shot down the hallway. Clint Carey went to the uh, kitchen dining room area, and then I broke off and went to the living room area. So if you can picture it, living room to the left, straight down the hallway to the bedrooms, dining room to the right. Uh, immediately, I mean, it was probably, I think we made entry at 210 and the victim was out at 212. So Brian went straight down the hallway immediately to where the fire was, found the victim laying right outside the fire room that we tried to make entry in from the exterior. Ended up being the origin of the fire room. He was right outside the door. So Brian found him and I'll let him tell the story on finding him and how he was laying and all that. So I just, yeah, once we made entry, um, I made that, it was just a short way through the kitchen, 10 or 15 feet, I guess. And I made a left turn down the main hallway of the house and um, moved pretty quickly. I passed um, what I saw was the front door and the steps on the way. As we moved in, I think the smoke conditions pushed down even further. Yeah. Um, we're down to six to 12 inches off the ground. Um, so I could see the light from the front door as I passed it um, through the tick up one more time. Cause I knew I was getting close to the, um, to the uh, Charlie Delta side of the house um, where I knew we had tried to make entry, um, just checking the heat and everything there and see if I could see him laying in the hallway. And sure enough, I saw him um, on the tick and I was running right into him anyway. So um, he was again, right outside the entry door. Um, so I, he was laying on his left side um, with his face and chest toward that door. Um, it was, he was a little bit away from the door, like toward the next bedroom. So, um, feet were basically more toward the, the fire room door. I just grabbed his wrist. Um, we did the victim, victim, victim over the radio. And I think it didn't get out, but Hank heard me and Clint heard me and they immediately came to me, which is something we've all trained on before anyways. Um, they came to me. I'd already pulled him just a few feet by his wrist. Um, it was slick hardwood floors. So the drag was um, very easy in my opinion. He was dressed in shorts and t-shirt. Um, so got him to the steps and we just a quick plan together was just not let his head bounce off the steps. I kept a hold of his um, wrist at that point and I backed down the stairs. Clint had his head and like grabbed his belt on his shorts, I think, right at his waist and Hank ended up grabbing his legs. We just came down the stairs to the, to the entrance, had to unlock the front door and just walked out back down another set of steps to the front yard um, and the med crew. It was originally from the engine. Um, one of the guys had a bag there and um, we started care from there and the ambulance was, you know, just staged down the street a short ways and they were, they were at the victim really quick too. He was, he had a pulse, but wasn't breathing. So that was his condition we got and no, no apparent burns, but he ended up having, burns to his chest that required um, treatment from the burn center. Stuff. A couple of things that stood out to me, um, and, and some of my biases are likely going to show through here, but I really appreciated how you guys performed what, what I deem as a split search once you guys went in there. Your speed is 
unparalleled. I mean, two minutes from entry until removal, that's tough to beat right there. Um, and we know that speed is directly proportional to saves. So you guys did a lot of strong work right there. I also appreciated how you used how he was presenting, meaning he was presenting with his arms towards you, uh, not his legs. And so you did uh, a wrist lock or arm lock and, and removed him. Um, I also love the, the communication, the victim, victim, victim. Even if it didn't get out over the radio, the guys that really need to hear that right now all heard it, it sounds like. Um, how big was this guy, like weight-wise? We're going to say, I don't know, it all happened so fast. <laughs> so about 5'12". We're going with 5'12", okay? He's 5'12". Five, five inches. <laughs> no, no, he was probably six foot, roughly six foot, 170, 180. Okay. So not probably the biggest guy in the world, but kind of an average, yeah, average dude. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what was the end result? You guys got him out. He obviously got some treatment at the hospital, was transported. So he went to our, a, a local um, hospital, which was just from that scene. It's probably three or four miles. Um, so they, he was intubated and taken there by our uh, paramedic. And I th he even said when he performed the intubation that, that he didn't have airway burns that he could see. Um, and he, you know, had some spontaneous breathing on the way to the hospital. Um, that hospital shipped him to a burn center within the first couple hours of him being there. Um, the guy stayed on a vent for, I think, maybe a week um, and was, um, from my understanding, may have gotten some help for the domestic, um, you know, scenario that he was in. I don't want to say he went to a psych facility because I don't know that, but I'm, I think maybe that happened and then, um, back home after that and I know our the county we work for was um, seeking arson charges um, for the whole um, call so <clears throat> well this is an odd one and and likely people are going to throw some arrows at me but I appreciate how you guys weren't judging who this guy was or what he did in the in the previous hour of his life you guys just did your job and gave him a chance. Um, so I, I think sometimes that, that could have ended up differently if, if we start trying to judge people beforehand. So kudos to you guys for, for doing your job and kudos to your battalion chief for making an extremely difficult decision about do we go in, do we not go in, when do we go in, where do we go in. Um, so a lot of difficult decisions in obviously the heat of the battle, um, literally at this point in time. Uh, Lieutenant Gregory and, uh, and I think it was Hank. Hank, you made entry the second time when you tried to VES that second room, right? Yes, sir. So just from my previous experience, um, I know that VES in a room, throwing a ladder, and you guys had plenty of time to, to contemplate all this, which seems like it's going to be helpful and, and certain areas it probably was, but I got to imagine going in, getting pushed out from high heat, not once, but twice uh, for Lieutenant Gregory, and then going back around. You guys had to ladder that, that deck, you said, right? Yes, sir. So then you're throwing another ladder. You're performing, uh, you know, in all intents and purposes, another VES. Um, it, it's a slider, but you had to ladder to get up in there. So we'll call it a window-initiated search at that point in time. And, and then you're performing a search. Obviously, the entire operation was relatively short. 
But do you think your, your fitness, I can see that you guys are all relatively fit. Do you think the fact that you guys seem to be in pretty good shape was helpful? Um, and would it have been differently if you guys weren't in as good a shape as you appear to be? Absolutely. I mean, it had a play in it. And the, the, the part of the county that we work in, we're a young, a young crew, very eager, have some pretty intense workouts, work out in gear, do a lot of search-based training slash working out, you'd say, uh, do a lot of gear workouts. Uh, what do you call it? How we work out with the different stations and stuff. Uh, just like circuit style. Yeah, a lot of circuit style workouts that that key in on the on the firefighting aspect of things. I think it's very important, and it's another thing that we try to push in the department is to to do more firefighter style workouts. I guess you would say. Yeah, that kind of job specific type stuff. Correct. I like and that. Especially like that day is the heat of the summer. It's probably ninety plus degrees outside. I mean, it's easy not to not to do those things, but in our, in the culture that we live in, I mean, that's, that's what it takes to be prepared. So yeah, we're very blessed. That, we're very blessed in our part of the department that, that we're surrounded by a lot of guys that have the same mindset. Yeah. It's incredibly uh, helpful when you have that culture already kind of pre-plumbed into your department. Um, kind of as we wrap up here, fellas, just a couple more feel, whoever wants to answer, feel free. And if multiple guys want to answer, this next, these next two questions, feel free. But what are, what's one lesson that you guys learned from this fire that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Anything that stayed with you? I would say it's kind of the one that you just touched on at the end was I wrote down, be ready to make difficult, um, sometimes go and no go decisions that are atypical scenarios. So none of us would have, you know, thought to prepare in this way for, for this type of call. But um, from that point forward, you know, I, w I would say that was to me one of the biggest takeaways because my end of the job I felt like was super easy. Um, I just went, you know, did what we all love to do, um, and it was fun for me. Uh, but the the battalion chief, um, in looking in the future, you know, having to ride up some and fill in in those positions, it, he did the the hard part, which was again knowing in his mind when he's going to allow us to operate and, and then pull the trigger to, to let us go do it. So that was, that was my biggest takeaway. Hank, that you know. and uh, maybe taking advantage. <laughs> we had to stage for so long, taking advantage of getting groups of guys together. Like you're going to be my search. You're going to be fire tech one. You're going to be fire tech two, which it, it all fell into place fairly easy on our scene because we already had lines in place. But if you're going to have that time to plan an attack, maybe to go more in depth on who is going to do what. Uh, me and Brian and Clint had already kind of made our mind up when we did get to go in. We were going to be the first to go. We were the first on scene. Brian was shortly after on the truck. So we'd already made our mind up that we were going in. But we probably could have planned a little better on who was going to be on the attack lines and, and some other – positions could have been filled a little easier if we'd have pre-assigned that before, uh, before we decided to go. Uh, learning from making sure you're, you're pulling up on a scene, like do the, do the police officers actually have the scene controlled before you pull up? That's a huge 
was a huge thing in our debriefing was, did you pull up too early or should you have staged? That was a huge discussion. Luckily for me, the cops were there and kind of flagged us up saying it was okay to come in and do the walk around. But that's another big decision that do you stage or do you not? And kind of have to make the decision on the fly. <laughs> we, this touches on the same thing, but just discussing this scenario with um, people in our department outside. And I heard the response from them. You know, you just lay out the scenario. They weren't there. So they're kind of the, the armchair quarterback is their decision was just let the place burn down basically. Um, and, and, you know, in a scenario that you're just, you have on paper, the scene wasn't safe in their eyes. Right. So we just never make entry because we don't know what the guy's capable of. Um, and again, me trying to put myself in that, that situation later on, that is a very, very difficult decision to make, but I like the way our, our battalion chief that day um, responded. And I would like to hope I do the same thing, given the same type scenario. Yeah, very good point. I, I see a, a common thread there and a, no surprise based on this incident, but the focus on decision making and planning, you know, it wasn't so much task level stuff here that was difficult, although kudos to you for making the decision um, that this was not a viable VES from that uh, Charlie Delta side window, that master bedroom and being like, no, we need to do something else here. This is not going to work. So decisions all around, I thought, were, were kind of the highlight for me, the, the part that stuck out uh, for me. Kind of one last question to wrap this up, and this is for, again, anyone and everyone. Has this fire changed your mindset towards the job at all on how you train or how you search or how you attack? I wouldn't say it has changed mine. I mean, not at all. Training the same given an opportunity again to be able to do what we have trained on so much, it kind of just came second nature. So uh, luckily we have prepared a lot on searching uh, and got to perform it and ended up doing, doing pretty good when we finally got to, but it, I wouldn't say it has changed my mindset on it at all or changed the way we train. I think it just reinforces that what we've been doing is the right thing, right? and just continue to do it. I like that. that. That's the perfect answer for this question. Um, anybody else have anything to add before we kind of sign off here? I think we're good. I believe we hit it all. Well, much appreciated, fellas. Thank you guys so much for sharing your experience with all of us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, for everybody listening, if you or anyone else you know makes a grab, please go to firefighterrescuesurvey.com and fill out a quick survey. That's one survey per rescue, so we can all get smarter, better, and faster. If you make a grab and want to share your experience with all of our listeners, please reach out to the, either Grant Schwalbe, Justin McWilliams, or myself, Nick Ledeen, and we'll try to record an episode. Thank you, fellas, and thank you for everybody listen, for listening. Take care. <laughs>